Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the news with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you, hopefully, with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you once again. Hello, Stuart, Sean. Great to be in conversation. I know this just drives you guys wild every week, but I love doing this. It's actually September now. I've been <laughs> telling you how bad August was, how fast it was going. And here we are. September 2nd, Stuart, is the Thompson household gearing up for back to school. Yeah, i am gone through all the levels of grief, and I'm now at acceptance. And the NFL season starting next week, so I'm trying to look on the bright side. Nice. Sean, your your guy is too young to go to school, so in some ways, you just have the Sisyphean rock that you got to keep rolling up the hill over and over and over again, don't you? Exactly. Um, but this morning, we turned the heat on for the first time, uh, so that made it real. Uh, we, we are Summer is officially over. Well, that's where I want to start with you guys. Summer is officially over. It is officially back to school, but also for many people, or not back to the office. There's a big push, especially across the United States, to get people to return to work. We're not talking about blue-collar workers, people who throughout the pandemic have been at their jobs Monday to Friday, sometimes not nine to five, sometimes a lot more hours than that, making society and our economy work. No, uh, Sean, this is white-collar workers who seem to have enjoyed the last two years at the cottage with their Mac Airbook and, um, you know, the occasional Zoom call, not wanting to go back to the office to resume in-person work. Sean, what's going on here? And I guess the bigger question is, has something fundamentally changed in the psychology, the mindset, the life goals of the, you know, average professional in Canada when it comes to how they think about work and the importance of work and the role of work in their lives. Yeah, I think there's something going on here. And it's something that we intend to investigate at the hub over the coming weeks and months. As, as you said, uh, Rudyard, the pandemic produced this interesting dichotomy, where the so called essential workers were different than the types of workers that we typically value or place a, a, a premium on either in the market or in some cases, uh, in, in a kind of normative way that at the end of the day, it was people in grocery stores or truck drivers or uh, those working long-term care who really stepped up and um, and helped us get through the pandemic. The rest of us had didn't have it so bad. We earned most of our, our paycheck. In some cases, our, our, our household incomes, disposable incomes went up, of course, because our, our spending went down and we got to work in our pajamas at home. And, and now, as you, you said, as employers are expecting employees to get back in the office, in effect, to go back to where we were prior to the pandemic, we're starting to see pushback, including the introduction of this new lexicon, I'm sure you guys have heard of it, of quiet quitting, the idea that uh, people are going to do the kind of bare essential, bare minimum rather, in their work uh, and not aspire um, either individually or kind of collectively uh, to, to push the envelope to pursue 
um, innovation and and um, and progress. And I, I think it it bodes poorly uh, for our society as a whole. And it bodes poorly, particularly for young individuals who are developing their human capital, developing their uh, professional credentials. I, I think the the kind of narrative around quite quitting is one that we want to. Uh, tackle and challenge in the coming weeks and months at the hub. Uh, and as you say, um, as we get, as the summer comes to an end, these issues are going to be even um, uh, more important. That's right, Sean. We are going to go deep on this at the hub. We think it's uh, just a fascinating kind of snapshot into a whole bunch of important policy issues and more importantly, some kind of cultural issues about, you know, what do we think about work? How do we value work? What does it mean if people have kind of lost the will to work together? And Stuart, that's where I want to go with you because Ottawa is kind of turning into, I don't know, the rebellions of 1837, 1838 set the pathway for responsible government in Canada. Well, now who knows? Is is the return to work going to be fought by the saint culotte of uh, Rideau Street in the, in the weeks to come? I mean, give us a sense here. What I'm hearing and uh, what you shared with me this week, some great reporting by Policy Options. I'll give credit where credit is due. The senior civil service has seems like they have a full-on revolt on their hands when it comes to mid-level, lower-level functionaires, as the French would call them, getting back to work even one day a week. Even one day a week. Unpack this for us, Stuart. Yeah, it is. Ottawa is an interesting place because I live in the suburbs, of course, where I'm basically, you know, when I go to soccer games with my daughter, it, public servants are all the other parents. And, you know, a lot of our friends are public servants. And so you hear a lot of this from both sides. You hear the political side of the story and then you hear this sort of, you know, yammerings among people who are involved in this. Um, and I think, you know, this is one of those really interesting situations. I was reading one of the union uh, representatives was quoted in the newspaper saying, you know, this is going to be a bargaining issue and we're in a really tight labor market right now. Um, so public servants have options. And the, the, my first thought, maybe a little uncharitable was, please call that bluff. Like that is a bluff that should be called by the, the government bargaining teams. But I think it is a real issue here because, and not just for the government, but as a sort of a societal issue. And I was talking to one of our contributors, we had a party for our one year anniversary and she was saying, you know, one of the things about the office is you get up in the morning, you're in your pajamas, you feel like, oh, maybe I could just sit at home and it would be nicer. And she brought up sort of the classical idea of freedom versus the modern idea of freedom. Our idea of freedom these days is we get to do what we want. We get to work where we want. We get to eat what we want. Uh, we get to do what we want with our day. The classical idea of freedom was not succumbing to those immediate temptations and leading a virtuous life. Um, this is the kind of nerdy way to go when you talk to <laughs> contributors, but I think that is a good way to look at it is it is not immediately satisfying to get up in the morning and get on a bus, commute, get on the highway, sit in traffic and get to the office. But I have come to realize that I really miss those little interactions, the little ones that spark creativity or get you motivated for your day or give you new ideas for what you're doing. And I think we've you know, it's it's sort of a trope that there's a motivation problem in the public service. But can you imagine all these people aren't talking to each other? They're turning their video cameras off on Zoom meetings. They're not really doing anything. Uh, I don't, just don't think it's a good situation at all. Yeah, here's my take on it. You know, it, it's terrific to aspire to um, 
a lifestyle of, you know, walking the dog in the middle of the day, a nice uh, lunch made out of, you know, organic greens from your local market, from your fridge, no, no commuting, no hassle in the morning, no rush to get the kids out the door to school. That's all great. And that is the lifestyle of some Canadians. I would call those Canadians entrepreneurs. But as those very entrepreneurs would tell you, that lifestyle comes with two things, no job security and no income security. And the prospects, the very real prospects for many entrepreneurs of failure and capital evaporated. Often your, your home equity is what entrepreneurs and small businesses are founded on. So what kind of grates me here, Stuart, about what I what are really happening in Ottawa is, is that there seems to be a class of people, and this goes beyond Ottawa, it goes to a lot of white-collar workers in larger businesses. They want that lifestyle. They've got a taste of it now. They love it. But what else do they want? Especially in government, they demand income security and job security. And I'm sorry, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You have to choose, just like everybody else. You're right. There's a super tight labor market. If you don't like making that trade-off between freedom and flexibility and security and safety, go get another job. Go use your home line of equity to start your own small business. Join the entrepreneurial class. To me, I don't know, you can hear maybe some of the frustration in my voice. It's like, this is just a bridge too far, Sean. Like we, like at a certain point, you got, especially the public service workers, you are there to work for the public good. Like, let's remember that your job is fundamentally different. You should take some, some, uh, some reward, some, some kind of moral, ethical uh, impulse by the very fact of what you do and where you work when you work for government and the public service. And if that's all at the window. And we're all free agents. We're all assassins. We're all mercenaries. Well, you know what the government should do? You know, they should really look at these employment contracts and either enforce the employment contracts to the law or say to these people, you are free to find other employment. And there's nothing wrong with that. This is a free country. It's one of hopefully one of the good things about it is you have a choice of where you work and when you work. But don't demand that as a member of the public service that you're going to get all the perks of an entrepreneur who's putting everything at risk every day to build a business, to feed their family, to employ other people and get the job security and the income security. It's too much, Sean, too much. Here, here, here. Um, there's so much to say in response. Let me limit my, my reaction to just a couple of quick points. The, the, the first of all, this is not a, um, this is not a, a set of choices that are without consequence for the rest of us. There has been good reporting, for instance, that one of the reasons we've had such a crisis in passport service delivery is precisely because a significant share of those working in Service Canada are at home. Um, and so it seems to me uh, the Canadians who don't have the option of working from home with the kind of job security and income security and retirement benefits and health and dental benefits and on and on and on that you're talking about are going to start to push back. Um, the, the second thing I'll say is we've published uh, analysis at the hub over the summer that shows that the significant share 
of employment growth um, over the past uh, several months that is concentrated inside the public service. So just think about that for a second, guys. We have the entrepreneurs that you're talking about, Rudyard. But more importantly, we have the uh, so-called essential workers who've put themselves at risk over the course of the pandemic to, to go out and carry out their function without a lot of fanfare. These are not people who are going to be the subject of obituaries down the road in the Toronto Star or the Globe and Mail or the or the Economist, um, but who've done uh, such important work uh, uh, on behalf of all of us through the pandemic. Now they're sending their tax dollars to Ottawa to finance business uh, to buildings that are uh, half empty on one hand, uh, and uh, to pay for uh, suboptimal services that are being delivered by people who are reaping all of the upsides, as Rudyard says, of, of working from home. It just seems to me it's an unsustainable kind of political economy dynamic, uh, and one in which uh, I think an enterprising politician could find uh, uh, salience and resonance if he or she wanted to start to um, kind of deconstruct these issues. Uh, I think for a, a public um, that would, uh, at least some segment of the public that would be quite responsive. Uh, what's your take, Stuart? Yeah, th so I think we shouldn't underestimate the class dynamics here. And a lot of this coming out of the pandemic, there are layers to this that I think are worth sort of looking at. If you look at the people who were most sort of COVID cautious, um, it was highly educated people people who tended to be working from home. And I I remember sometimes talking to family members who were just going about their day and going to work every day, you know, whether it was retail or anything like that. Um, just, you know, the sort of like wry smile they would have when they heard this kind of stuff. And the other side of that though, is that the voices calling for school closures tended to be these highly educated people who work from home, who could put their kid in the basement and have them on virtual school, um, or it was the teachers unions uh, calling for this stuff. And then someone who, you know, if you worked at a local retail store or some store where you had to be there to do your job, you were screwed if the schools were closed because you had to find some way for the kids to do school. And, you know, what ended up happening was that grandparents were coming into the game to, you know, babysit the kids. And that kind of destroys the whole point of protecting the elderly people from COVID. And there was all this kind of incoherence and it was so clearly just, you know, self-interested stuff from people who are in their pajamas sitting at home. And I think that that resentment is going to last. It's good, definitely going to linger for a while. And if, you know, 40%, 50% of white collar workers are still working from home, enjoying this life while the rest of the world goes about their business, working a normal job, that resentment is going to linger and it could linger for years. So guys, uh, I've got a policy prescription for you. It's called decimation. So just to unpack that in ancient times, in ancient Rome, when a legion, you know, one of the building blocks of the Roman uh, army lost its colors in battle, those kind of standards that had the flags of the legion and then the, the eagle on top of that, that big spear carrying the flag, this was considered the height of dishonor in, in the Roman army. And this is how tough the Romans were. They would line up the entire legion. And every 10th man they would walk down the line would be killed in punishment randomly. <laughs> now, I'm not saying we're going to line up this whole service of the Breton Flats, okay, before someone has a heart attack. I am simply saying that 
the fear of the coming recession and job losses and the potential to be fired. Uh, who knows? Maybe we're just peak absurdity right now. And six months from now, people are going to be scrambling back to the office because our mortgage payments have all shot up. Our credit card payments have gone through the roof. You know, our car loans and everything else has created this picture of, you know, financial uh, stress that is probably unique for many Canadians who have simply not felt high interest rates like we're going to feel in the coming months at any time in their life. So I make this partly in jest, but I also think seriously, the, the government and hopefully the senior civil service is going to push back here and assert, especially for people who work in government, you have a you have a, a social license that you have to cultivate and keep with the public. And it, it is in your name, public service. If that is lost and the public thinks that you are a, a just simply another predatory organism latched on, you know, to the soft underbelly of, uh, of government seeking solely its own interests, its own prerogatives, boy, I really worry about, you know, the future state of public services and our ability to deliver them to Canadians in an efficient, effective way that has broad uh, public support. Okay, I'm going to end it there. Let's take a quick break, guys. When we come back on the other side, we are going to talk economics. There are some GDP numbers out this week. Stuart did a helpful roundup at the Hub. We'll unpack those for you and maybe give a sense of where the Canadian economy is going to head from here. Thank you for listening to the Hub's podcast wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to the hub's daily email newsletter we call it per diem and it features some of our best analysis and insights all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world simply visit our website www.thehub.ca follow the links to subscribe and then the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive per diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time. No worries. But we think you're really going to enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via per diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub podcast. Now back to our program. Okay, you are listening to the Friday Hub Roundtable. It is September 2nd. We are into the start of school, maybe the return to work for many of you. Uh, also, uh, a kind of snapshot, Sean, that we had this past week of the Canadian economy's GDP numbers came out, kind of surprising people on the downside, well below the Bank of Canada forecast, even further below the so-called analyst forecast. These are primarily the bank economists and others. Um, the private banks. Uh, so what's your sense, Sean? What did you take away from the GDP report? And more importantly, what might it say about the future of the Canadian economy? Yeah, uh, great reporting by Stuart, uh, as you said, uh, Rudyard. You know, I think the best spin the government could put on this week's numbers is that we continue to underperform the United States, which has already uh, had two consecutive quarters of negative growth. We're not quite there, but if you look under the hood of uh, the numbers that came out on Wednesday. Um, they're a sign that that's the, the, the direction we're headed. Uh, July will be the first month that we experience negative growth. And I, I think a lot of the people that Stuart talked to in his piece, I'll turn it over to him in a second, 
uh, think that there's going to be more of that, not less. And so, you know, into Q1 2023, we, we may very well find ourselves in a recession, uh, which is going to be uh, a kind of crucial backdrop for some of these broader conversations we're having about, you know, the relative size of the public sector, um, expectations around work, um, even, uh, and I'll just put this seed down now and we can revisit it later. Um, you know, the kind of sustainability of public finances. There's a lot of um, kind of euphoric news in recent days in Ottawa and some of the provinces that uh, governments so far in this fiscal year are projecting fiscal surpluses. Um, you know, but the, the kind of small print will tell you, Rudyard and Stewart, that a lot of that heavy lifting is being done by inflationary pressures, which are putting um, uh, positive pressure, upward pressure on revenues that spending fundamentals haven't really changed. And so I guess long story short, um, things aren't looking quite as good as the headline numbers would, su would suggest, uh, Rudyard. Stuart, um, what were some of the key takeaways from your piece? Again, listeners can grab that right now at www.thehub.ca, a dispatch uh, news story reported out by Stuart on uh, Thursday, the 1st of September. Yeah, this was one of those great pieces where you come into it with an angle and then you talk to people and you rethink the angle because we were chatting about the prospect of a recession. And, you know, I spoke to Philip Cross about this. He was the first guy to sort of disabuse me of this notion, not necessarily disabuse me, but maybe reorient my angle here where we shouldn't not be concerned about a recession. Of course, we should be worried about that. But his focus on inflation and the prospect of inflation not getting under control um, is just a deeply worrying thing. And I think um, the Bank of Canada has kind of signaled that its concern right now is that we get into sort of a wage hike inflation spiral where companies start, well, in a tight labor market, employees start demanding that their companies hike their wages to meet these uh, inflationary demands. Wages go up, people start spending more, and then we get into this spiral of inflation that's really hard to stop. And if you look at the European numbers, um, there's predictions of 10% inflation in the Eurozone. Germany's numbers were higher than expected. Um, we've started to see some signs that things are coming down. The gas prices have come down in North America, but the underlying numbers are still not what we would hope they should be. So I... You know, talking to Philip, he said, yeah, of course, a recession is bad. It's it's really, really bad for a small share of Canadians. But if you look at inflation and if it continues at this rate or even just a lower version of this rate, um, that's bad for everyone. There's nobody that can hide from that. Yeah. And I think key point here to, for everybody to understand is that it's really about the rate of change. So when, you know, they report a new inflation number, say next month of, I don't know, let's hope it's going down. Let's hope it's you know, 7.2%. That simply means that the rate of change over that, you know, what year to year has changed, you know, it was dropped, uh, you know, from 7.9 to, to 7.2. Um, that's great. You could go all the way back to zero, but just remember that when you get back to zero, you haven't regained your purchasing power. Your, your salary isn't worth what it was before this inflation started because you've just gone back to a zero rate of change. You haven't made up for the loss, the pernicious effects of inflation in terms of higher prices over the last 18 to 24 months, you would need deflation 
in order to go back. And we will not, I mean, the central banks will do everything they possibly can to avoid uh, deflation. So, you know, don't count on that. Um, so I think that's really important for people to remember. And it, and it, and it makes me a little bit sympathetic to a lot of blue collar uh, workers out there who now have had this purchasing power eroded, arguably permanently. It's gone for good. It's not coming back. They're not, you know, invested in, um, well, Bitcoin hasn't been doing so well lately, but we won't talk about that. But there are other, you know, asset classes that the 1% who really benefited for the last decade or more from quantitative easing and all the kind of zero capital and easy money that the central banks around the world created, you know, they're just fine in a way because they've had a huge run up in, in their net worth over the last decade. That hasn't happened for Sean, for these uh, blue collar workers. They're staring now at a permanent loss regardless. They're never getting it back unless we have a depression, which would be even a worse outcome, you know, than than a recession or I would even argue, you know, persistent higher inflation. Yeah, I'm glad you put that on the table, Rudyard, because I think those trade-offs have been mostly absent from the policy debate in Canada. You know, we've heard a lot of people talk about um, the fact that the Bank of Canada needed to take the extraordinary action it did, not just through the pandemic, but as you, you said, over the past several years where we've seen experimentation with, you know, low bound in some cases, in some jurisdictions, less than 0% interest rates. Um, and to the extent to which the kind of mainstream media and other uh, popular commentators are prepared to criticize the central banks, it's mainly that they waited too long to start to uh, let rates rise and, and, and mitigate the inflationary consequences of, of years of, of easy money. But they're not prepared to go further and ask uh, the question that you've just put on the tra table about um, the, the trade-offs for uh, different segments of our population. And in a way, it, it reinforces our earlier conversation, uh, which I, you know, one gets a sense that we're kind of inadvertently moving into a new, cla new class divide between the kind of laptop class, as uh, some voices have put it, and, and those who, uh, who have no choice but to, to go to work. Um, and, 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 you know, it seems to me that th this conversation is a manifestation of that same divide, but just on an another level. Um, before I turn to Stuart, though, Rudyard, I, I couldn't help but notice that you were tweeting yesterday. Uh, uh, you had some uh, comments about uh, the Bank of Canada's efforts to effectively defend its program of quantitative e e easing. You know, what, uh, what bugged you about uh, the Bank of Canada's exercise in so-called public education? Oh, wow. He's waving the red flag in front of the bull. Uh, Shawnee, it, you know, I'll, we'll, we'll put my uh, tweet thread I did in today's show notes. I mean, th there's just something weird going on in the bank. I hope it's just uh, kind of August where, you know, the cats are away, the mice come out to play. Um, you know, the PR hacks and flax maybe at the Bank of Canada as opposed to The Economist have taken over the Twitter feed of their website. There's a truly bizarre... Um, and somewhat disconcerting um, kind of explainer for Joe and Jane Public on quantitative easing uh, that they released. And it was just, um, it was interesting in its defensiveness and frankly, its disingenuousness. It suggests that, you know, quantitative easing, this is the, the practice of the bank during the pandemic to purchase hundreds of billions of dollars worth of, of bonds, primarily Government of Canada bonds, uh, to reduce 
interest and borrowing costs for everybody, because if you suppress the government yield on the safe government debt, all the other debt is priced off that. So car loans, house loans, everything, you know, falls. And you could say that was a legitimate policy response at the height of the pandemic. Many people would say they kept it going for way too long. And as I've written at the Hub and Pierre Polyev and others have commented, well, guess what? If you suppress borrowing rates for everybody, including government for a long time, it tends to help activist government because it reduces the the fiscal check, um, the fiscal limit that traditionally governments would run up against if they were launching massive tens of billions of dollars in, in new spending. That, that would show up in their budget projections and their long-term deficit projections. And they'd have to have a reaction, a relationship with the bond market. Well, that went away. And the central bank, again, this week comes out with this statement basically saying we're not funding um, borrowing by government. We're doing this. Uh, I won't bore you with the mechanics uh, you know, on our balance sheet, blah, 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 blah. The fact is that friends of mine who really are uh, deep experts in the Bank of Canada were really surprised uh, by this statement. We're surprised by how you know, to say politely, it kind of gilded the lily in terms of uh, economics. And it suggests to me, guys, that the Bank of Canada has an impulse now to kind of enter into the political conversation, the political de debate, in this case, I guess, to defend its reputation about something that happened in the past, which I think is kind of pointless because it's really about inf fighting inflation today. And frankly, who cares about QE? They've largely stopped it. So, it's an odd reaction, Stuart. And I'll give you the last word here. And I wonder if it's a the effectiveness of Pierre Polyev, frankly, and a Bank of Canada that's feeling defensive, that's feeling uh, maybe the government's not stepping up to speak out for it. Uh, it concerns me, though, because I think it shows an inclination to enter into dangerous political territory and ground on the part of the Bank of Canada, that's an area they shouldn't be in. They've got to remain above the fray, uh, cool, calm, objective, fighting inflation. But here they are effectively making political arguments about the size of government. Yeah, there, there's something that happens when you are a reporter for any length of time is you'll be working on a critical story. Um, and if it's a politician, they usually just schlop it off. Most of them, they either don't care or they bury it down deep inside and you don't publicly realize um, that it's affecting them. But every now and then you do a story and the defensiveness of the reaction or the kind of shock and the sanctimony, um, it tells you that this is a person or an agency or an office that's never really dealt with public scrutiny or public criticism before. And they tend to react badly and in a way that is counterproductive because of that natural defensiveness. And I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, you saw it, another good example of that was when all that great reporting about the previous governor general came out and almost all of the reactions from that office were counterproductive um, to the main goal of trying to stay in the office. Um, so I hope that you're right, Roger, that we see something changing, you know, in September when, you know, if Polyev is the leader of the conservatives, this is not going to go away. I, I think he's realized this is a pretty good um, sort of populist avenue. And if we continue to see rate hikes, um, one of the things that Philip Cross told me is that, you know, there's a September 7th meeting of the bank. We all expect half a point or, you know, three quarters of a point uh, rises of interest rates then. 
Philip Cross said he expects more after that, um, which is people are kind of hedging on that. And I was surprised to hear him so confident about that. But if that continues to happen and then we hit a recession, um, the idea that public criticism of the bank would go down at that point, I think, is crazy. Yeah, great insights, uh, Stuart. Okay, guys, uh, we're up against the clock, so we're going to wrap it up there. But terrific conversation. Just a heads up that uh, some great topical content in the hub coming up this week. We've got some back to school content. We're going to be looking more at uh, this whole issue of uh, the return to work or not for white collar professionals. That's coming up the week after next. Um, Sean, anything else you want to highlight that listeners can look forward to uh, in the pages of their digital hub editions uh, (laughs) every day at www.thehub.ca? Well, just that, uh, you know, by next Saturday, this Conservative Party leadership race, which I think everyone is is exhausted by as as we are, will finally be over. And so if people have been following along on our Future of Conservatism series, we'll have uh, some final essays and articles on, on that subject. As you say, uh, Action Pack Week, uh, um, you know, worth recognizing the work of Stuart and our deputy editor, Luke Smith, in in producing um, that content week over week. And I, I stay tuned. I think next week is a, a, a really, uh, a really great one from, uh, from the hub. Awesome guys. We'll do this all again next Friday and go deep, spend the whole show on Saturday's vote to elect a new conservative leader of the party for Canada that represents the conservative movement. We've been covering it exhaustively at the hub over the last few months. It all comes to a crescendo next Saturday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable podcast at The Hub. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, your executive director. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, the editor-at-large at The Hub, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Aidan Moscovich. If you can access a YouTube version of this audio on YouTube, simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get it on our website, www.thehub.com. Look for the Friday Roundtable. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations for you, featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite audio program. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. We'll do it all again next week. Bye-bye.